I'm very thankful to be here this morning for the ministry of the Grace Life pulpit, uh, which ministered to me before I ever knew that Grace Life was something here at Grace Church. I would just download the sermons and listen to them. And then when I moved here to Burbank, I met Sheldon Coe, and he told me I had to come to the Grace Life Fellowship group where Phil Johnson was the pastor. I thought, I thought Phil like had his own church or something like that. He's like, no, it's just a fellowship group. And I was like, oh, wow. And so I came here and I stayed here and I'm uh, incredibly thankful to the Lord for the discipleship that I've received here from the leadership and also just among you. It's been uh, easy to grow as a Christian because I see the example of Christ so much in your lives within our Bible study and all of you who have discipled me, and that makes it very difficult to think about leaving someday. We will all someday meet again in heaven and have a eternal fellowship and worshiping of our Lord together. So let me uh, open us in prayer, and then we'll open the Word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the fellowship that we have in Christ and that we share here with one another this day. We ask that by your word that you would sanctify us by showing us Christ and making us more like him. Amen. This morning we're going to be going to Psalm 32 in our Bibles. We'll be turning to Psalm 32 if you would join me there today. Psalm 32 reads, A Maskell of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble you surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Do you remember when the Lord first saved you and the great joy that you experienced and just feeling the burden of your sin lifted off of you? You had to tell everybody about it. You were a zealous evangelist. But then over time, some of those old sin habits came back. And you re-experienced the grief of living in that sin. And something about that grief reminded you that you come to your Savior to deal with that grief, 
that you come and you confess that sin to Him, that repentance isn't something that you just do one time, but it's something that you do for a lifetime. God, your Father, continues to guide you away from sin and toward Himself throughout your life. And when you confess your sin and you come to Him, you experience again rejoicing in forgiveness. David is the author of Psalm 32, which we read this morning. And we can recall from his life the sin that he had with Bathsheba, which we read about in 2 Samuel 11. And you remember how he tried to cover his adultery by having Uriah killed. And what that brought into his life was emotional agony. It made him physically ill and he was mentally disturbed. But then Nathan the prophet came to him and told him a parable of a rich man who took a poor man's lamb. And as David listened to this parable, he concluded that whoever that man is, he deserves to die. And then came these crushing words from Nathan, you are the man. David then responded by recognizing that he had sinned against the Lord. And when he had recognized that, Nathan told him these comforting words, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. David knew the blessing of confessing. And that's the title for our sermon today, The Blessing of Confessing. Psalm 32 is a mascal. Most likely this word means instruction or teaching. David wrote Psalm 32 to teach the people of God to confess their sins to the Lord. So why did God put Psalm 32 in the Bible? To exhort us to confess our sins to God so that we may rejoice in being forgiven. This psalm is here to exhort us to confess our sins to God so that we may rejoice in being forgiven. In Psalm 32, God gives you five responses to His forgiveness. The first one is express joy in verses 1 and 2. We respond by expressing joy. The second is recall turmoil. The third is confess sin. The fourth is to receive instruction. And the fifth, to rejoice in forgiveness. And I'll repeat these points later so you can write them down. But quickly there to express joy, recall turmoil, confess sin, receive instruction, and rejoice in forgiveness. The structure of this psalm is what we call a chiasm. And simply what the chiasm does is that the central point of the psalm is in the middle. So this psalm begins and ends with rejoicing. And then it speaks about God's fatherly discipline. And in the center of it is an example and exhortation to confess our sins. Now we're going to look at the first response to God's forgiveness, which is expressed joy, which we see in verses 1 and 2, which begins with this word, blessed. This word in the original is in the plural. It's an intensified word. It means how happy or how joyful. 
And this is how the entire Psalter opens up with, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And in that Psalm, you see the contrast of how joyful it is for the man who walks in God's counsel. But in this Psalm, we see that part of following God's counsel is in confessing our sins. The Proverbs uses this same word in Proverbs 8.32 to say, blessed are they who keep my ways. And as we think about the mourning that our sin brings and how God comforts us when we confess it, perhaps you remember the blessed language in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.4, where Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In these first two verses, you'll notice that there are three words for sin, which will be contrasted with three words for forgiveness. We need to understand sin in, under, in order to be able to understand what it is that we're confessing and to understand exactly what it is that we're forgiven of. And we need to understand forgiveness so that we can guard against cheap substitutes and so that we'll have a right knowledge of forgiveness which will result in a deeper worship of what God has done for us. The first of these three words for sin is transgression. And this word has the idea of there being a, a breach in relationship to God's law. It's doing what God forbids. Transgressing God's law causes a breach with God and with man. This word is used in Genesis 50, 17 of Joseph's brothers who they threw him into a well, they sold him into slavery, and they came to Joseph later fearing that he might hold a grudge against them. And he said, please forgive our transgression. Forgive the breach and on the relationship that we have caused. The second word for sin is sin. This is perhaps the one that we use the most in our own vocabulary. This word means to miss the mark. The mark is God's character expressed through God's law. And this is all too well illustrated in Exodus 32 when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and found that the Israelites had broken all of them in their golden calf worship. And Moses said to the people, you yourselves have com committed a great sin. They had missed the mark of God's holy law. They had misrepresented the perfect character of their creator. This word refers to sins that are both intentional and unintentional. God's standard is himself. It is perfection. But what makes sin so sinful? We're created in the image of God. We were created to represent the God who made us. So what's the big deal with just telling a white lie? Well, we were made to represent a God who always tells the truth. So when we tell a lie, we represent our creator as one who doesn't always tell the truth. And that's a high treason. And in doing so, we miss the mark. We miss the target that God has for us. And we go flying past into what would be a bottomless pit known as hell, unless mighty God intervenes to rescue us. We see this concept summarized in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have missed the mark and we fall short of representing our creator as he is. We need to see sin as primarily against God if we're ever going to understand the gravity of it. The third word for sin is iniquity. This has to deal with guilt from committing an offense. This is demonstrated in 1 Samuel 20 when Saul was jealously pursuing David, knowing that he would soon become the king. And David expressed his distress to his close friend and son of Saul, Jonathan, saying, what is my iniquity? Or in other words, what offense am I guilty of committing against Saul? This word iniquity signifies the totality of our sins against God and neighbor. And it directs our attention to God's complete forgiveness for those who repent. And where there are three words for sin to address the entirety of human evil, sin against God and neighbor, there are three words for forgiveness to teach us that there is complete forgiveness for completely sinful people. The first word that you see in these first two verses is forgiven, which is sometimes translated lifted. And it has that idea of a lifting, of a taking away, a pardoning of sin, iniquity, and transgression. So characteristic is this action of taking away sin that it's listed as one of God's attributes. Remember in Exodus 34 when Yahweh revealed himself to Moses and he said he was the one who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Sin can be forgiven and not remembered because it is taken up and carried away. Maybe you remember in the Pilgrim's Progress when Pilgrim came up and ascended to the cross on the mount and that his burden was lifted and cast down the mount to fall into the mouth of the sepulcher. The burden of sin can weigh a man down to hell, but the strong Christ can lift it from the man and then to take him all the way to his permanent dwelling in heaven, which he has prepared for him. Forgiveness has become such a assumed familiar theological concept that I think that it's worth taking some extra time here to think about it to make sure we rightly understand it. What is forgiveness? If somebody were to ask you today after this sermon, how would you answer? Is it the same as apologizing? Is it just saying I'm sorry? Is forgiveness just a feeling? Forgiveness is a promise. It's a promise to pardon. When we confess our sin, God removes it as far as the east is from the west. In Isaiah 43, 25, it declares, I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. And here comes the promise. I will remember your sins no more. God does not passively forget 
but he actively chooses not to remember. The promise of forgiveness is to not bring sins into the remembrance of anybody. So what does this look like when we forgive one another? When we biblically forgive one another, we're making a promise not to bring the remembrance of another sin up to ourselves, to them, or to anybody else, unless it be for their good. The second word for forgiveness that we see in these first two verses is covered. Sometimes this word is translated hide or conceal. When it's used of man, it carries the sense of concealing. But with God, it carries the sense of forgiveness. Proverbs 28, 13 shows the contrast. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Perhaps you remember Adam and Eve after their sin that they tried to cover themselves and to hide themselves from God. And we have a way of covering our own sin. And the way that we do it is we have a whole blame-shifting repertoire that we like to open up in that moment. It was the woman that you gave me, or I was just tired, or it's just been a hard day. It's just these other people in the way that they're treating me. We need to learn to move from concealing our sin to having God cover it for us. And this requires faith and repentance. It requires faith that righteousness is not found in trying to conceal sin with our supposedly good deeds, but faith that Christ is our righteousness. It takes faith to see ourselves as being in Christ and in the Spirit rather than in Adam and in the flesh. It requires repentance, turning from concealing our sin to the covering blood of the fountain flowing from Emmanuel's veins. But why does a Christian who has already repented and been forgiven still need to ask for forgiveness? Do you remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We continue to repent and ask for forgiveness because Jesus said so. And there's a distinction that we need to make here to help us in our thinking, and that's between judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness is that of a judge when God declares us legally just because of the work of Christ on our behalf. Parental forgiveness is that of a father. It's not a loss of salvation, but it's a recognition of a break in felt family fellowship, whereby he disciplines us because we do indeed belong to him. As a father of five, 
all of my children belong to me as long as the Lord has us together here on this earth. And when they sin in my household, they're not removed from it, but disciplined so that they might turn from their sin and into the loving arms of their father. The third word that we're going to look at for forgiveness here is counts. And it speaks of God not counting our sin against us. Uh, sometimes we see this translated credits or imputes. And we speak of how our sins were credited to Christ and his righteousness credited to us. Or there's that exchange of accounts with that terminology of imputing. Our sins are transferred to his account, but his righteousness is transferred to ours. In Romans 4, which Jeremiah read for us this morning, Paul quotes these verses here, Psalm 32, 1 through 2, in emphasizing the concept of counted righteousness. But it's interesting to see what Paul does in those verses, because before he comes to Psalm 32, he goes to Genesis 15, 6, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what he does in that text is he ties together Genesis 15, 6 and Psalm 32 together to say, God not only puts his righteousness on our account, but also forgives our debt. Or as the old hymn puts it, he is of sin, the double cure, saves from wrath and makes us pure. Think about how amazing that is. When man invents gods, you have to earn your way to them. But when the one true sovereign God offers salvation, it's of him and him alone. This leads us to rejoice with the prophet Micah who said, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. What great joy is there in knowing that all your sins against God and neighbor have been forgiven. To know that all your guilt has been lifted. But where there is exceeding joy in knowing that forgiveness, that there's forgiveness of confessed sin, there's also great turmoil in living in the deceit of unconfessed sin. Which brings us to our second response to God's forgiveness, which is recall turmoil. In verses three to four, Recall turmoil. Opposite of verses 1 and 2, instead of David expressing joy in the forgiveness of sin, we see him recalling the turmoil of unconfessed sin. And instead of being vocal, he was silent. Silence is an inept covering for our sin. Not talking about it doesn't deal with it. And we stop talking to God because we have something to hide. We already know that from Adam and Eve that silently tried to hide their sin from an all-knowing, all-seeing God. And to do that is not only impossible, but foolish. Silence of neglect will never bring the rest our souls so long for. Have you stopped talking to God? Does he hear your voice every day? 
think Alistair Begg has a key pastoral insight when he recognizes that there's three persons who know that you've become silent because of sin. You, God, and the discerning. The reason that you stopped rejoicing is because you have sin to hide. And what has it produced in your life? A heavy burden that just doesn't seem to lift. But as you look in verses 3 and 4, I want you to notice whose hand it is that's bringing this turmoil upon David. It says, your hand. It doesn't say Satan's hand. It doesn't say man's hand. It's talking about God's hand. God's fatherly disciplining hand. The father of perfect wisdom guiding and training his son to turn in the right way. The father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning, who is good and only does good. You know what makes our complaining under the difficulties of life so incredibly sinful is that they accuse God of not being good. We need to remember whose hand we're under, a hand that intends only good. And when we mature to see that truth, we will experience counting our trials a joy. There's no better hand than that of an always good God to guide us, but that doesn't always make the experience pleasant. David describes the experience as bones wasting away, strength dried up, a dehydration of spiritual life, dried up as with the fever heat of summer. You've been ran down, ran over, and you're rotting on the narrow path as spiritual roadkill. And sin has effects on your physical being, doesn't it? When you live a life of, dishonor, of dishonesty, wondering, I wonder if they're starting to figure out that I'm lying to them. It makes it hard to sleep at night. Or when you live in anger, selfishness, being easily irritated when people don't bow down to you quite like you bow down to you. There's stress and the stress makes your body hurt. I want you to think for a moment about how the Corinthians partook in the Lord's Supper, and they did that in an unworthy manner. And in 1 Corinthians 11.30, it says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you sleep. They were sick because of their sin, and some even dead. But just because we're sick doesn't mean we've sinned, but it's possible. The taking of physical and spiritual strength under our kind Heavenly Father's disciplining hand guides us to not trust in our own strength, but to look to the creator and sustainer 
of any strength that we may have. Yet, though we know God is good and only intends good for us, there's still a great wrestling within to move from silence to speaking. What makes confession so uncomfortable and infrequent? Though you're in Christ and that's your new identity, you still step in your old ways of being a pride monster. And when you're doing that, you're acting out of character. You're doubting that God is good. And in your pride of individualism, you think that you're sufficient to deal with the problem yourself. I've got some fig leaves and there's a big bush over there. I've got this. No, your sin is making you stupid. Proverbs 12.1. <laughs> then there's the pride of perfectionism. You just want to be seen as having it all together when if you were humble, you would confess that you don't. Instead, you fake happiness for a false appearance of self-control while your unconfessed sin eats you from the inside out. Another thing that makes confession so uncomfortable and infrequent is pride of self-pity. Perhaps you expected that I would say self-righteousness and not self-pity, but these are twin sins that stem from a focus on self rather than God. You're self-absorbed with the sense of your failure rather than Christ being your victory. If this is you, ultimately you have a want problem. You want to deal with things in your own strength, maybe for personal recognition. You want others to serve you, like you, and approve of you. And when you don't get what you want, you turn inward and you focus on yourself. And life centers around what you want and concerns to your own happiness, accomplishments, and worth. One of the fundamental elements of maturing as a Christian is learning not to get stuck just looking at yourself and your circumstances but to look up to the God who made you and in divine love ordained your circumstances. Our thoughts must go from inward to outward to upward. I recognized a, a struggling in my own house to believe this very truth. And so what I did was I self-published a book it's called The Record of All Your Sins. And when it came in the mail, my wife and opened it. I said, oh, did you get the book that, that came in the mail? And she said, yeah, I saw that horrid thing. I didn't even want to look at it. I just threw it on the desk. I said, you need to read it. And so she opened it up. The Record of All Your Sins. And she started flipping through the pages only to find that they were blank. And that's exactly what Christ does with our sins. The record of them are a blank book. But within that book is a footnote to the sources for the content. And 
In the sources for the content, you'll find Colossians 2, 13 through 14, which reads, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All of your trespasses. What about your past sins? Even those. What about your present sins? Yes, those. What about your future sins? You know, some would think that, I don't know how that works. Maybe you still have to pay those off somehow. But were your sins past, present, or future when Christ died on the cross? They were all future. He offers a complete forgiveness. And what rejoicing there is in that that makes us want to declare that to those who don't understand that truth. Maybe you're here today and you believe that you have to pay for some amount of your sins. I want to tell you that Jesus Christ is better than you think that he is. He's not a Christ who pays for some of your sins and then expects you to pay for the rest of them. Jesus Christ pays for all of the sins for those who will come to him. Only a fool wouldn't come for a gift like that. Pride of individualism, perfectionism, and self-pity lie to us. They keep us from the God-promised joy that comes from confessing our sins and finding sure forgiveness in Him who is faithful and just to forgive all our sins and will by no means cast us out. It can be easy to despair when we forget the promises of God. Again, maybe you remember in the Pilgrim's Progress when Christian and Hopeful were in the castle of giant despair. The bonds of despair were unlocked by the key of promise. Despair is defeated by believing God's promises. We need to learn to move from dwelling on earthly things to setting our minds on those things which are above. We need to remove ourselves from worshiping at the altar of despair and ascending to worshiping at the altar of God's promises, especially the great promise of complete forgiveness for the repentant. And we need to be addressed with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to remind us of this. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. David knew well the pains of unconfessed sin. Perhaps for about a year, he was trying to cover his adultery with a murder and dealing with the turmoil that all might be exposed. But making excuses for our sin is not the covering we need and it leaves us miserable. We need the covering of the blood of Christ, which only covers the repentant, the one who confesses. 
So it's here that David directs us in confessing our sin so that we might know the joys of forgiveness rather than the miseries of our unconfessed sin. We're going to turn to looking at verses 5 to 7 in the psalm. And the third response to God's forgiveness is confess sin. Here we see David's example and exhortation. He gives us three words for what to do with sin. Acknowledge, to not hide it, and to confess it. David acknowledged his sin rather than making excuses for it. Instead of hiding it, he brought it out into the open. Instead of remaining silent, he confessed. And along with these three words for confession, our three words for sin reappear to show us the comprehensive of the confession that's needed. But then following a comprehensive confession comes a comprehensive forgiveness, which lands us upon some of the sweetest words in all of this psalm at the end of verse 5. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This reminds us again of Proverbs 28, 13, which really sums up this concept. Well, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The promise for those who conceal is not prospering. The promise for those who confess is finding mercy. This text reminds us of God's willingness to forgive. And you need only to confess your sin and to turn from it and to God. God carries the price for our forgiveness. Now, confession is not the cause of our, of our forgiveness. It's not the cause, but it's the condition. And God is the one who is the source of forgiveness. We don't want to confuse the diagnosis with the cure. Forgiveness comes from God's own nature. So the reason that we confess our sin is because we know God's character. He's faithful and just to forgive. 1 John 1, 9 through 10 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now that last part of the verse, some of you might not be willing to speak like that and say, we, we've not sinned. But in fact, maybe you try to soften the blow and just say, well, everybody makes mistakes. I, I, nobody's perfect. Or you just become silent. You might not say out loud, I have not sinned, but you live like it when you stop confessing your sin and you begin making excuses for it. Now, you can take a bottle of poison and you can relabel it spring water 
but it'll still kill you. Sin likes to label itself just like that. It likes to present itself as less than fatal and for your good. We must learn to acknowledge our sin, not seek to hide it, and verbally expose it to all offended parties. And since all sin is primarily against God, you must always confess your sin to God and ask for forgiveness. And if your sins affected anybody else, you have to humble yourself and go and confess it to them and ask them for forgiveness as well. Now, if you look at verses 6 and 7, you'll see this passage where David prays for you. It says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. David prayed that you would offer prayer to God at a time when he may be found. And some of you, you need to hear that there's going to soon come a day when he cannot be found. When I look at verses 6 and 7, there's something about the language that makes me think of Noah and the ark. Noah preached righteousness faithfully for around a century. And the people did not repent while God could be found. The alarm sounded and people treated it as if it were false. I mean, think about how Noah very well could have wrote these words. Protected from the floodwaters in the ark. His hiding place from God's wrath. Preserved from the trouble surrounding him. And instead of being surrounded by God's flood of judgment, he was surrounded by song of deliverance. Scripture goes on to teach us that Christ was the ark, that it was a picture of Christ who saves us from the wrath to come. Christ is our deliverer from the punishment that we deserve for our high treason against the God who made us and kindly sends men to plead with us to turn from our sin and to turn to him for a complete forgiveness, to declare, don't hide from God, hide in God. We need to follow David's example of confessing sin and remember his exhortation to pray. Now, moving forward to verses 8 and 9, God warns us against stubbornness to confess sin and promises discipline. So the fourth response to God's forgiveness is receive instruction. And no surprise, we have three words here for instruction. Instruct, teach, and counsel. Here the psalm returns to the concept in verses 3 and 4 of God's fatherly discipline, which brings turmoil in our lives, but it's also paired with instruction. It's a training and a disciplining together. Now, you parents in the room know that when silence comes over your household, you have great reason for concern. 
And often you find a little somebody hiding somewhere. Did you color on that? Did you eat all of those crayons? And it's in that moment that you need to provide guidance. And our Father does that. He comes and He seeks us and He provides that guidance for us. And there's something about receiving counsel from somebody who cares for you that makes you want to do well when their eye is on you. You think about a coach and an athlete, how the coach trains this athlete to perform well in whatever his sport is. But then as the coach comes to watch the athlete at the time of his performance, that athlete wants to do well for the one that trained him. And we want to do well for what we were trained to do, to run the race well. You know, it's easy to be like David, racing forward like a wild horse into sin. And no doubt we've often imitated him in his sin. But do we imitate him in his repentance as well? Or are we like a stubborn mule unwilling to do so? For David, the bitten bridle was the prophet Nathan who confronted David's sin saying, you are the man. And oh, that we would be friends like that, who would be so zealous for God's holiness that we would be willing to have that awkward moment with one another because we don't only love God, but we love that individual as well. And that we would be the kind of person that when we're confronted with our sin, even if we're confronted wrongly, that we would be willing to examine ourselves and to know that deceit is actually deceitful and that it can happen to us. When believers persist in their sin, one of the most helpful passages on discipline is in Hebrews 12, specifically verses 5 through 11. It teaches us that God disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplines the ones whom he loves. And while it may be painful for a while, it's for our sanctification. It's for our good. It's for our being conformed to Christ. I want you to think about this statement. It's one that I, I thought about for months and months and months before I think I really understood it. All suffering is discipline. All suffering is discipline. It's never purposeless suffering. There's always a purpose in all of your suffering. And it's never only punitive because Christ died for our sin. We don't have to pay for any of them, ever. All of our suffering functions like sandpaper on a piece of wood, taking out the rough edges to help conform it into the image that it's to be in. 
We don't want to be like a stubborn mule under God's kind discipline in our lives. We don't want to be stubborn to, toward moving toward confessing our sin. Just think of the fruit of that. It only produces grief. Especially in light of the fact that you could turn to God and receive his loving kindness in the moment of confession. Now, when the Lord's disciplining hand is heavy upon us, we need to be quick to recognize his loving guidance toward what is best for us. It's the wicked who live in the pains of their sin, but the godly are to rejoice in forgiveness. Which brings us to our fifth response to God's forgiveness. Rejoice in forgiveness. Here we see a contrast between the wicked and the godly. It says the wicked live in the sorrows and pains of their sin. But those who trust in the Lord are surrounded by loving kindness. I think sometimes we can misread this contrast as the wicked and the perfect. But if you remember Psalm 1, it's the righteous. It doesn't say the perfect. It says the righteous are those who walk not in the counsel of the wicked but they walk in the counsel of God. The idea is not perfection, but a different trajectory. If you think in 1 John, there's a difference between the one who makes a practice of sin and the one who makes a practice of righteousness. We need to remember also that our righteousness comes from Christ's perfect life being credited to our account. And because of our union with the resurrected Christ, we walk in a new way of life. Christians don't lose favor with God when they sin. Christians don't gain favor with God when they obey. Grace is undeserved favor. His love is steadfast. His throne is always a throne of grace for those who come to him. We also see three words for rejoicing here in these last verses, 10 through 11. And we see throughout the psalm that there's threefold praise that matches the threefold sin, the threefold confession, threefold forgiveness. Threefold teaching and the threefold protection of our Lord. And the first command is be glad. Here God is commanding your emotions. And I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said, happiness is not only our privilege, but our duty. Truly, we serve a generous God since he makes it part of our obedience to be joyful. It's not enough just to do our duty. It's to be done with delight. And doesn't our king deserve servants like that? Think about how we represent our king when we grumble while obeying him. 
Who would want to follow that king? Who would want to join that servant in the task that they have? And so Spurgeon goes on to write, how sinful are our rebellious murmurings? I think it's worth reading the first half of that quote again so that that idea can really sink in. He says, happiness is not only our privilege, but our duty. Truly, we serve a generous God since he makes it part of our obedience to be joyful and to reflect our joyful God and to rejoice in being forgiven by him and to shout for joy, which is a commandment for us to sing. Again, reminding us of the great need for us to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs for the benefit of our sanctification within the fellowship that we have here. Do you know why the sinful woman in Luke 7 wet Jesus' feet with her tears and why she wiped them with her hair and anointed them with expensive ointment expressing such beautiful devotion to Christ. Jesus said this, for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. She could express her joy in being forgiven because she could recall the turmoil of her past sin. But she had confessed her sin in receiving Christ's instruction to repent and believe. And now she could, with the deepest of rejoicing, rejoice in being forgiven. She loved much because she had been forgiven much. Do you remember your first love when you were first saved and that great feeling of your guilt lifted and the hallelujah that followed? Receive this instruction today to confess your sin. May God soften your heart and grow a greater love for him through this. If you think that you have little sin, you will perceive yourself as having a little God and a little forgiveness. But if you perceive yourself as having big sin, you will see that you have a big God who has given you big forgiveness. The more we see the enormity of sin, and confess it, the more that we can enjoy hearing these words from our Savior, your sins have been forgiven. The blessing of confessing is rejoicing in being forgiven, leading us to joyfully shout, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin 
not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Blessed God, you are the source and goal of all our joy. You have imputed our sin to our substitute. You have imputed his righteousness to our souls. Thank you for the misery that comes with straying from your instruction, which guides us to your gracious embrace. Forgive us our pride, forever doubting your goodness. Forgive our individualism, perfectionism, and self-pity. We praise you that the record of all our sins is a blank book because of the cross work of Christ. He has paid for our sins in full. We will be punished for none of them. This teaches us to quickly and joyfully respond to your discipline, which affirms that we belong to the good Savior. Grant that we may never lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. And may we be the holy and happy slaves who shine forth the image of the blessedness of our King. Christ, you are the King who rules us, the prophet who guides us, and the priest who ever lives to intercede for us. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.